You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman. Open up your app this morning to the Gospel of Luke, according to Luke. I want to talk to you this morning about a heart checkup. As we continue where we left off last Shabbat, nearing the conclusion of our 21-month study of the Gospel according to Luke, if Yeshua's detractors could have shown his body lying in a tomb or or anywhere for that matter, the newly born movement of Jewish Yeshua followers would have ended. This piece of evidence has never been overthrown. It's never been discredited. Even the first official explanation that the Talmudim, that the disciples had stolen Yeshua's body, was an affected admission that the grave was definitely vacant and vacated. Jewish and Roman sources acknowledge an empty tomb, including the first century CE Jewish historian Josephus. Yet the absence of a body alone is not solely a compelling argument, but when you combine it with the fact that a living, breathing Yeshua appeared on several occasions to his disciples, you either have to say the account is fictional or Yeshua really did come back from the dead. And so as we look at the biblical text this morning, Yeshua suddenly appeared to his Talmudim. The account of the appearance of the risen Yeshua to the two on the road to Emmaus is unique to Luke's gospel. But overall, Yeshua didn't just make one or two appearances in total as this gospel describes. The scriptures tell us during the 40 days between his resurrection and when he ascended back to heaven, Yeshua made numerous appearances. In the words of the Shaliach, the emissary, Shaul or Paul, quote, the Messiah died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Kepha, Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 Achim, brothers and sisters, at one time. Now, if this was a hoax perpetrated by one or two or three people who claimed to have seen Yeshua alive, they might have pulled it off. But it's beyond the realm, my friends, it is beyond the realm of logical possibilities that 500 people could have been part of a hoax. Of these 500, all of them suffered persecution and many of them died horrible deaths. The late Chuck Colson former advisor to President Richard Nixon during the Watergate scandal, told how difficult it is to keep a cover-up going. All of Nixon's top, uh, his top advisors got together and agreed to the same lie. You remember, they concocted a story and agreed on the same dates, the same facts, the same time to protect President Nixon. Yet Colson says, as soon as the media scrutiny began, every one of them folded like a cheap suit to protect himself. 
Chuck Colson said this, quote, If six Harvard and Yale educated men could not stand a modicum of media scrutiny to protect the most powerful man on earth, how likely is it that 11 uneducated fishermen could withstand torture, imprisonment, and death to cover a hoax concerning an obscure Jewish rabbi? As incredible as the resurrection may seem, a cover-up is even more incredible. Open up your scriptures to Luke 24. Let's begin reading in verse 13. Now behold... Two of them on that very day were traveling to a village named Emmaus, a distance of about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were speaking with one another about all the things that had been happening. And while they were talking and discussing, Yeshua himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Then he said to them, what are these things you are discussing with one another as you are walking along? They stood still, looking gloomy. Then the one named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? Yeshua said to them, What kind of things? And they said to him, The things about Yeshua Menitzrat from Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful indeed in word before God and all the people, how the ruling Kohanim, the priests, and all our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they executed him. But we were hoping that he was the one about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, today is the third day since all these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us early in the morning. They were at the tomb. When they didn't find his body, they came saying that he had also seen, they had also seen a vision of angels who said he is alive. Some of those with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but they did not see him. And Yeshua said to them, O oh, foolish ones, so slow of heart to put your trust in all the Nevi'im, all the prophets spoke. Was it not necessary for Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. They approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther on. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening, and the day is already gone. So he went in to stay with them. And it happened that when he was reclining at the table with them, he took the matzah, the unleavened bread, offered a bracha, a blessing, and breaking it, gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from them. Now, Jewish law required the pilgrims to stay on to the end of the first Sabbath of unleavened bread in order to fulfill the commandment of celebrating Passover in Jerusalem. And so on the day after the seventh day Sabbath, two of Yeshua's disciples left Jerusalem, as we read. One of them was a man named Cleopas, and Luke's readers would have recognized his name. He was Yeshua's uncle, the brother of Joseph. His wife Miriam had stood at the tree of sacrifice with Miriam, the mother of Yeshua. And both Talmudim heard about the empty tomb earlier that morning. And as they walked these seven miles west out of Jerusalem, probably heading home, which might have taken them probably a half day to travel, that afforded them 
what, several hours of conversation. They argued over the details, trying to piece these events together. My friends, these two disciples of Yeshua learned a great deal when they were on the road with him that day. And if you and I will continue to walk with Yeshua in our lives, you and I will learn a lot as well. They both experienced the full range of, of the human emotional experience. We can infer that they experienced a broken heart. That they experienced a blinded heart. And then experienced even a burning heart. Let me ask you a question this morning. What is the condition of your heart, of my heart? Have you got a broken heart? Well, on the road of Yeush, despair. How many of you know on this road, Yeshua will walk with you? One would think that these two disciples would have at least waited to the, until the fourth day to leave town, just in case Yeshua did rise from the dead, but they had absolutely no expectation of it. And so they left. These two Talmudim were sad, not because they had not seen the resurrected Yeshua, but because they were thinking that their faith in Yeshua as the Messiah had been in vain. Cleopas and his companion were so discouraged and so depressed that we can almost hear them dragging their feet as they shuffled along toward Emmaus in sadness. But then a stranger, assumed to be a Passover pilgrim like themselves, who had been to Jerusalem for the festival and was now returning home as well, slips up to walk with them, but they didn't recognize he was Yeshua. In fact, the phrase, quote, were kept from recognizing is a divine passive that is Adonai kept them from recognizing Yeshua. As they walked toward Emmaus and no doubt discovered or discussed rather Yeshua's very public execution a few days earlier before Passover, this stranger inquires of them what they're talking about. And so they go on to tell him of the puzzling events from earlier that day. And notice here in these verses that Cleopas is no longer referring to Yeshua as the Messiah, but only now as a great Navi, a great prophet. Again, these Talmudim had left Jerusalem, not waiting to see if Yeshua would rise on the third day, as he had often told them that he would. The mystery of the missing body remained unsolved. And these strange quote-unquote visions of the women seemed to them like the symptoms of hysteria. But actually, look at verse 23 once again with me. Notice in verse 23, the statement was not factually true. The women did not tell the 11 disciples that they had seen a vision of angels. They told them that they had really seen angels. However, these 11 Talmudim, unable to believe their report, apparently decided that it must have only been a vision that the women saw. So even though certain facts of the women's story had been confirmed for these disciples here in verse 24, they still were heavy with sadness as they walked this seven-mile journey together. This tells us that they weren't even entertaining the possibility that Yeshua would rise from the dead. Again, notice the despair here. 
in their comments. They speak about Yeshua here. Notice in the past tense, he was a prophet. He was handed over. He was executed. They were hoping that he was the one about to redeem Israel. Their dreams were shattered, my friends, and their hopes were cruelly crushed. My friends, when you lose hope, you are walking and traveling on the road of Yeush, despair. There's somebody in my mind in this congregation this morning who has lost all hope and wants to die. I'm going to ask you to lift that person up right now. Hope is a fragile commodity, and when it is lost, it is hard to find again. Again, perhaps more than one of you might be walking on this road right now. You may have lost hope for what? Your marriage? You may have lost hope for your dreams. Some of you may have lost hope for your children. Maybe you've lost hope for your health. Maybe you've lost hope for the health of your loved one. Whatever it is. When you travel down this road of despair, there is someone who wants to walk with you. In fact, do you know why Adonai created mankind? <laughs> He wanted to have some people with whom he could relate, somebody he could talk to, somebody he could walk with. We find in Bereshit, in Genesis, we read that after Adonai created man and woman, he, what, walked with them in the Garden of Eden. He, wants, he wanted to have fellowship with them. And after they disobeyed his instructions, their sin ruined that fellowship. On the evening that they sinned, Adonai came walking through the garden, and Adam and Eve, whew, they're nowhere to be, they're hiding from him. And since that time, Adonai has been bringing men and women back into a right relationship with him. He still today wants to walk with you. He still today wants to talk with you on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. But some people are still hiding from God. But they don't have to. Adonai wants to walk with you and give you fellowship and give you friendship. Even when you're walking on this road of yeush, of despair. My friends, the most exciting truth in the universe is that there is a living God who loves you and you can know him personally. You can walk with him. It is possible to have a relationship with him. Part of Super Shabbat, in my mind, is getting the message of this message out. A few weeks ago here, we dedicated a new baby boy named Enoch. You recall that Enoch in the Tanakh, quote, continually, what? walked with God, that then he was not there because God took him. For someone who walks with God, death is merely a brief moment of being transported into the presence of God. For someone who walks with God, as has been often quoted, death is not a period, it's a comma. It's only a brief moment of changing locations. 
Do you have a sense of walking with God like that, like Enoch? I'm here to declare to you this morning, you can. That's the first thing we learn on the road with him. But maybe your heart isn't broken this morning. But maybe you have a blinded heart. On the road of emmet, on the road of truth, Yeshua will open your eyes. Now, surprisingly, at this point, Yeshua, still hidden to their eyes, he rebukes them for their unbelief. Interestingly enough, the Greek text of Oh, foolish ones, does not specify whether these were two men or a man and a woman, perhaps a husband and a wife, walking together. Many scholars hold that accompanying Cleopas was here was Luke himself, who was one of the 70 disciples from Luke chapter 10, verse 1. And the reason he didn't mention himself was that he was the writer of the story. It's possible. But in any event, these two disciples thought the crucifixion meant that Yeshua was an utter failure. They assumed the execution stake, big mistake, huge mistake, Yeshua. But Yeshua showed them that it was Adonai's heavenly mission. Yeshua then proceeds to expound upon the Torah and all the scriptures related to his suffering and his exaltation. This discourse must have taken some time, my friends, for by its conclusion, they had arrived at the village. This was not a drive-by that you get in an elevator to share about the Messiah. This was a thorough goings-over, wasn't it? As you know, Judaism refers to the canonical scriptures of the Hebrew Bible under three headings, right? Torah, prophets, and writings. Verse 27 here refers to all three of those. The title Moses here means the scroll of the five books of Torah. All the prophets refers to the major and minor prophets, which includes the historical books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And the rest of the books, including the Psalms, fall under the broad category here of scriptures, that is, the writings. Now, Luke does not actually record for us the actual contents. I would have loved it. Read this. Of the Emmaus Road Discourse, the actual down and dirty details. But he takes this occasion to rehearse the narrative One more time, giving a historical summary here. He takes care to include all of the relevant facts about Yeshua, his identity, his calling, his work, his reputation, his rejection, his death, and their disappointment over what they thought was his mission. But I think you and I this morning can reconstruct some of it based on the texts that are cited by the Shalachim, the emissaries, the apostles, as messianic prophecies. Yeshua explained the Torah passages concerning himself by way of indicating that he was going to come from the seed of a woman, not the seed of a man, Genesis 3.15. And by speaking of the promises Adonai gave to Abraham regarding his heir, a promised seed that stood to inherit the land and through whom all nations are to be blessed, Genesis 22 and chapter 12 as well. Yeshua explained the prophetic passages concerning himself by describing his doing of niflaot, miracles. Quote, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing. 
He may have mentioned that prophecy from Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, and reminded them possibly of the prophecy in Daniel that refers to him being executed like a criminal before the destruction of the temple. Quote, Mashiach will be cut off and have nothing. Then the people of a prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Chapter 9, verse 26. Yeshua explained the passages in the writings concerning himself by showing that he was to be declared the Son of God. Psalm 2 no doubt discussing the entirety as well of Psalm 22, which describes from top to bottom his suffering. And with all of these and more biblical passages, these two disciples, oh man, it's like all the pieces begin to just gel and begin to come together. Surely their master Yeshua had fulfilled the scriptures in dozens of citations. Maybe I can get an usher or so. I want to pass out a reference sheet. I've given this out before. Uh, over a year ago, I tweaked it just a little bit. Uh, Proclaiming Yeshua the Messiah through Jewish prophecy, a reference guide. This will be very helpful for you. Actually, it was, it's been about 25 years or so since I've had this laminated one, which I love uh, to share from because all the scriptures here are, are brought from the Tanakh, the Alexander Harkavi version published by the Hebrew com uh, Publishing Company. And it's much more comprehensive than what I've given you here in terms of prophecies. My friends, I want to encourage you this morning, you're welcome, to keep traveling on this road of truth. Listen, Yeshua will walk with you on that road of despair, and I'm not minimizing it at all. Many in here are widows. It may take years for you to finally end your journey on that road, and we walk with you on that road. But there's another road, the road of truth, to honestly investigate the truth, like Kepha or Peter did as we began to look at last Shabbat. I believe Yeshua will open your eyes the same way that he opened the eyes of these two disciples. Again, through the sweep of the scriptures, there are several basic truths that Yeshua taught them that day that the scripture tells us. He wants to continue teaching that to us today as well. What are these things, these truths? Number one, Yeshua had to die for us to be forgiven. You see, in verse 26, Yeshua said, Was it not necessary for Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? You know, every single year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, you recall the Kohen Gadol would sacrifice a spotless lamb, right? It couldn't have any blemishes. You see, the reason we need Yeshua to be our substitute is because you and I are not spotless lambs. Our lives are filled with blemishes. And next he opened their eyes to the truth that all of the scripture points to him. Verse 27 states, quote, again, then beginning with what? Moses and the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself in the scriptures. If you know where to look, how many of you can attest it? You can find Yeshua on practically every single page of the Tanakh. It's incredible. There's over 300 prophecies. Probably many more than that. And finally, Yeshua reveals to them the truth concerning his identity. We learn that we must invite Yeshua into our life to really see him. You see, when they came to Emmaus, 
the two disciples invited Yeshua into their home for dinner. As people usually avoided traveling at night because of darkness and robbers, etc. Jewish people throughout the ancient world welcomed fellow Jews who were traveling to spend the night. By the way, insistence was part of that hospitality. I think we've lost that today. I want to encourage you maybe tomorrow, get together with some folks. Be insistent upon it. Now notice here that Yeshua didn't force his way into their home, but he yielded to their invitation. Yeshua wants us to invite him into our lives and into our homes also. But how many of you know he wants to be more than just an occasional guest in our lives? He wants to be Adon. He wants to be our Lord. Yeshua enters their home as the guest, but then we see something different. We see him. He's the one that's breaking the matzah. He's the one making the blessing, just as the disciples had heard him do so often. This was the task of the host. Here's the spiritual lesson today. Yeshua will enter our heart as the guest, but he wants to become the host. He wants to become Adon, the Lord of our lives. And so as Yeshua is breaking the unleavened bread, the two disciples' eyes were opened and they suddenly recognized him. Again, it's in the Greek, another divine passive. They were opened. The supernatural obscurity was replaced by a supernatural illumination. Perhaps this is the way that Luke is explaining why some come to faith and others do not. Has to be a supernatural illumination. How many of you experienced that? Man, you can be talking till you're blue in the face unless the Holy Spirit's in the process. It's like dead wood to them. They don't understand what you're saying. We find in the Gospels that many did not recognize him post-resurrection, interestingly enough. Miriam from Magdala mistook him for a gardener. The disciples fishing on the lake mistook him as a stranger on the shore. Adonai prevented their physical eyes from recognizing him. Now, although not found in the canon of Scripture, but in an extra-biblical document fragment, Yeshua appeared to Yaakov, Jacob, or James, separately. The fragment says this, quote, Now James had sworn that he would not eat bread... From the time that he drank the cup of the master until he would see him risen from among those who sleep. The master said, bring a table and bread. He took the bread, made a blessing, broke it, and gave it to James the righteous. He said to him, my brother, eat your bread, for the Son of Man has risen from among those who sleep. My friends, it's quite possible for you and me to spend much of our life without really seeing Yeshua, and then in an instant of divine revelation, you see him. Maybe that's been your experience in the kingdom of God. I don't mean with these eyes, right? But you see him with the eyes of emunah. You see him with the eyes of faith. I think that the two on the road to Emmaus, walking with their unrecognized Messiah, illustrates Yeshua's unresolved relationship with most Jewish people since his resurrection. In accordance with some unsearchable 
inscrutable wisdom, Adonai has closed the eyes of many of his Jewish people and prevented so many of Yeshua's brothers and sisters in the flesh from recognizing him until a certain time. Oh man, I got to read that. I got to read that. I got to read that. Romans chapter 11. Quickly, quickly, quickly. Romans 11. Here's the time. Verse 25, Romans 11, Rabbi Shaul writes, For I do not want you, brothers and sisters, to be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until... Don't neglect the biblical conjunctions, man. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel, Kol Yisrael will be saved doesn't mean that no more Gentiles are coming into the kingdom of God, but God's refocusing back upon his chosen people. We're living in that generation. We've seen a three-fold increase in 20 years, from five to 15,000. There's over 100,000 Yehudim Mishachim, Jewish believers, in this country alone, many of which are hidden. It's another message. Don't be hidden. Verse 27 states, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself in all of the scriptures. These two Jewish disciples on the road to Emmaus did not recognize the one who walked among them. Yet the, Yeshua walks along with them all the same, doesn't he? Think about that. Israel's failure to recognize or acknowledge the Messiah does not diminish Yeshua's right to the title or authority over his people, nor does it exclude his presence from their midst. The risen Messiah often conducts himself incognito among his Jewish people. So the question becomes, how do you know if you've seen him? Here's the answer. You won't have a heart of despair. You won't have a blinded heart. You'll have a heart on fire. Do you have a burning heart? On the road of Sameach, of rejoicing, you cannot be silent. It is a road of rejoicing. I know so many believers, man, they're just, they just hardly crack smiles. Man, this is good news. It's the best news. We can't be silent. And so as soon as they recognized Yeshua, poo, he disappears from their sight. Vanished without a trace. Yeshua could not only suddenly appear after his resurrection, but he could also instantly disappear. Now, there's a question that arises from this issue. It's a theological fine point, but it's an issue nonetheless. Did Yeshua, is a question, did he dematerialize when he suddenly disappeared from the disciples after this appearance? I think there's a solution to that question in that Yeshua, as he rose in the same physical, albeit glorified body in which he died. And so it reveals to us that while the post-resurrection body obviously has more powers than his pre-resurrection body, it was not less than physical. That is, it did not cease to be a material body, even though by resurrection it gained powers beyond mere physical bodies. 
Now notice what they said in verse 32. Didn't our heart burn within us while he was speaking with us on the road? While he was explaining the scriptures to us? My friends, there is a physical discomfort that you and I have. And we will probably have it around 5 p.m. tomorrow. I'm just speculating. And that is heartburn. And you can take Tums for that. You can take Rolades for that if you'd like. But there's a spiritual heart burn that is not uncomfortable. Actually, it's a wonderful experience. How many of you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and that experience compels us to not be silent. One final application of this text, the meaning and impact of the resurrection. Maybe today you accept the historical fact of the bodily resurrection of Yeshua. Maybe you're listening to this podcast, or maybe you're watching this on YouTube, but you don't really understand what it means to you. In other words, there is the fact of the resurrection, but what about the impact of the resurrection of Yeshua? Here's the main thing I think it means to us today. We know that the grave is not the end. Have you read the the latest statistics? Ferris, I'm going to ask you because Ferris loves to put all this data on some of these text threads for us. Have you read the latest statistics on death? Get ready to write this down. Write this down. One out of one people dies. It's the latest statistic. Robert, you're a number cruncher. I'm telling you, this is amazing. Absolutely. But we don't like to talk about death. Actually, the media does. How many COVID deaths? You know, but, but have you noticed we, we don't like to talk about it usually when we, use, we say so-and-so has passed on. So-and-so is no longer with us. We have a hard time for some reason saying he died, she died. Death is inevitable. We know this, but there's a bigger question. And the bigger question is this. What happens to a person after they die? Many people insist to us that life is all there is and then the grave is the end. My friends, the resurrection of Yeshua lets us know for certain, uh uh-uh, the grave is not the end. Before he was resurrected, Yeshua taught us that each of us would also be resurrected. He said this, quote, Do not be amazed at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Then those who have done good will come to a resurrection of life, and those who have done evil will come to a resurrection of judgment. Now, the term done good, meaning that they have trusted in Yeshua's execution as atonement for their sin, been immersed into his death and raised to eternal life, and are granted a share in the first resurrection. The other is for those who have done evil, those who have not trusted in Yeshua. Those are subject to the second death. My friends, because of Yeshua's resurrection, hear me today. We don't have to fear death. Doesn't mean, you know, I'm not willing to jump off the Empire State Building or something. No. Lord, just let me go while I'm preaching. Lord, let me go in my sleep. I'm not stupid. I don't want to go through, you know, what the disciples and the apostles went through, surely. But the fear of it, 
We don't have to fear it. Paul writes this, and I love this. He says, death is what? Swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Now, the sting of death is sin, but thanks be to God who keeps giving us the victory through our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. Truly, my friends, the world has been forever changed that day when Yeshua walked out of that tomb. The world's been changed. Now, some might ask as well, Rabbi Joel, how do you know for sure? How do you know for certain the resurrection of Yeshua is a historical fact? Well, let's compare it with another historical event then. On October 19th, 1781, British General Cornwallis surrendered to George Washington at Yorktown. This was the last battle if I got this right, of the Revolutionary War and led to our independence. But let me ask us a question today. How many of you were there when Cornwallis surrendered? But how do you know what happened? Have you seen photographs? Have you seen a YouTube video of the surrender? So how do we know what happened? I believe it happened and you believe it happened because we have the reliable record of eyewitnesses who were there. But there's another reason why we know it happened. Look around you. Our nation is no longer a British colony. We don't speak with British accents. And we don't have tea and crumpet every afternoon. We don't submit to the rule of the queen. We don't submit to the laws of parliament. We elect our own president. Do we? I don't know. I mean, we've been, we don't want to be deceived. Just saying, right? Uh, we elect our own members of Congress, maybe. We are the United States of America. And this is because the American army defeated the British. My friends, I wasn't there when Yeshua walked out of the tomb, but I believe the word of the eyewitnesses. When I look around at our world, I realize it is radically different because Yeshua is alive. Millions of followers of Yeshua are making the world a better place. Look at the thousands of charitable organizations inspired by Yeshua's life, inspired by his resurrection, inspired by Judeo-Christian principles and commandments. We no longer live under the rule and reign of death in the grave. So let me conclude, if you would stand with me this morning with a couple of final questions for us. How's your heart today? Put your hand on your heart. Oh man, mine's beating fast. Is your heart broken? Are you on the road to despair? Why don't you let Yeshua walk with you? Maybe your heart, is your heart blinded about the truth of Yeshua and the scriptures? Why don't you let Yeshua open your eyes? 
Are you a follower of Yeshua today? Maybe for decades you've followed him, but you've allowed something to put out the fire in your heart. Why don't you ask Yeshua for his holy heartburn? My friends, the stone has been rolled away and the tomb looks empty. There's not a corpse there, but there is something there. It's called Tikvah. It's called hope. <laughs> Father, we thank you for hope today. Lord, we pray for this man here amongst us who has lost some hope. We pray that you would give him holy heartburn this weekend. Bring back the flames of revival in his heart. Maybe there's some listening here who are in that same situation. Maybe you've even considered taking your own life. There's hope in that grave today. Yeshua is alive. He has given you hope today of resurrection. What he got, we get. I think over the last two years, we have seen so many in our world lose so much hope. We have the antidote. We're not ever going to close our congregation. Listen, if it wasn't for the fact that we were under a lessor that did not allow us to meet, we would have not closed. We would have operated in wisdom. We've remained open. Sure, people have gotten sick. Yeah, people have gotten really sick. Our Shabbat school teachers, their first day back today, she's been gone for over a month. Yeah, people have been sick. We've been praying for the resurrection power of Yeshua. Ferris, for your brother and for your sister and for so many here. We're praying for them. But we're not going to forsake the episynagogue and of ourselves together. Because why? Because we're digging new wells of hope. We're digging new wells of hope. I'd rather err on that side to bring the hope of Yeshua to people that desperately need it here in San Diego and around the state. So God, I thank you and praise you as we round out this gospel next Shabbat. Oh man, this was great news to Cleopas and his companion. And we're going to see that next week. So, Father, I praise you today that you are renewing that fire within us. We're all on Yeshua's team today. Some of us are ball boys. Some of us are quarterbacks. He's the owner. We're glad to be on his team today. We don't have to bet 1.6 million on if it's iffy, if it's... No, we know we can bet our lives because Yeshua wins. In the end, he wins. We can bet our lives on that fact. We have read the eyewitness accounts, Yeshua wins. And so let me recite God's blessing over your lives. Is what Yeshua no doubt did. At this meal that night in Emmaus, over the disciples, he prayed, Adonai 
May the Lord bless you and keep you today. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May Adonai lift up his countenance over you and grant you shalom. In the name of Sar Shalom, the Prince of all peace. That's Yeshua. That's who we follow. That's the name of the game here for eternity. And all of us who are with him said, Amen, be Amen. Let's give him some praise today. Honor and kabod and glory. Hallelujah. Well, join us out in the lobby. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes, or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out, too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through Scripture.